Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. If you received a phone call today from your doctor and they told you you had six months left to live, what would suddenly become crystal clear to you? What would change? If you had participated in five startups and one turnaround, what would you have learned in that process? If you'd been married for 42 years, had five kids and 18 grandkids, what would you learn about your family and how to juggle the demands of family and business? Well, if you're into any of that stuff, you're going to love today's conversation with Mark Hornibrook where we cover his terminal cancer diagnosis that was eight years ago that he continues to successfully battle, what he's learned along the way of participating in five startups and juggling the culture of rapidly expanding businesses and the demands of a large family and competing priorities. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Mark Hornibrook. All right, Mark, we are live. I am pumped for today's conversation. As I kind of think through what what are we going to cover? Five startups, a turnaround, marriage for 42 years, five kids, 18 grandkids, 25 moves. I don't know if we're going to be able to cover it all, but let's give it a whirl. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. Looking forward. I guess let's start with a little bit about who you are. So kind of what are the key points for our listeners if they wanted to know who Mark Hornibrook was? Tell us a little bit about you. So I kind of teased it, married for 42 years, five yeah. kids. So I'll let you take it from there. My dear wife, Anne, is just delightful. We've enjoyed our marriage together more and more as time goes on. So married for 42 years, I'm going to cut you off there. I guess if you were to go back and give some marital advice to somebody kind of earlier in their marriage, 42 years is pretty awesome and less common these days as it once was. Any tips or tricks for uh, a rewarding, purposeful marriage? Simply the first thing is to stop looking at the negative of your spouse. Just erase it. Just focus on the positive. What are the things you love about her? What are the things she does good? What are the things you like? And just drop the things you don't like. Just get rid of them. Just forget them. Override it. What's your favorite thing about your wife? I just enjoy being with her. She's just fun. She's She's an exciting person to be with. We like traveling together and she just gets so excited about things and delighted with stuff. Love hearing that. Yeah. Okay. So I cut you off. Keep going. So 42 years, five kids. And you know, when I was in high school, I didn't want any children. I wasn't even sure if I was going to get married. And then afterwards, things changed dramatically. Actually, I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and my life spun. It was all about profession before. And now it was about family and church and that whole thing changed everything. My focus in life. So when that happened, then family became important, and my wife wanted to have a bunch of kids, and I thought, okay, we'll learn this together. 
and we did, and it was delightful. I wouldn't have it any other way. We just had a great time with it, and they've taught me a lot. It's awesome. And then 18 grandkids, and despite 25 moves, you haven't been able to shake them. They're nearby, and you guys get to see one another. We do. It's amazing. It's a, a real pleasure. And then we've had the – I have a degree in architecture. That's how I started and uh, thought I'd do that for my life. And I went out and did that for about six years. And every time a recession happened, which we had two or three during that six years, architects were out. You know, they just, no one wanted an architect because they weren't building anything. Yeah. And I decided, well, if I'm going to be an architect, I'm probably going to get into management. I want to do a good job because I don't see very many good managers in architecture. Nothing personal. But so I went back to get an MBA. And when I was doing that, other things came up. And I discovered I loved strategy, and so I looked at getting into maybe a consulting, Bain & Company, or Boston Consulting Group, and as I was trying to do that, this other company came up, Hill & Brand Industries, who actually hired two guys from those companies and really pushed their companies forward. So they ended up giving me a deal I couldn't refuse in a small little Midwestern town, which seemed great for raising a family. We already had two at the time and more planned, so it was a great place. Learned a lot from them, and then I just discovered, you know, I really love business, and we stayed around it. We actually got into pre-need business that way. Pre-need is when you plan your funeral ahead of time, yeah, and fund it with a specially designed insurance product. And I got into that and just loved it. Done that for the rest of my life. Let's jump into that really quickly. I to provide context for some of the later parts of our conversation professionally. So you originally trained as an architect. And, you know, the, the economy didn't synchronize very well with your graduation. And so one door closed and a new one opened. You pursued your MBA. And then subsequently, five startups in a turnaround. And presently, you know, part of a, a wildly successful organization here in the Northwest with national presence. Kind of what's the cliff notes on your professional journey? When I, I went to Fourth, I went into their corporate strategy group, which is a great place. Learned a ton quick. They were doing acquisitions, so I'd get in and study out industries and businesses and, and pull in a lot of information, which was useful. But part of the, they had a strategic process, a strategic planning process for their companies. And I was assigned to the casket company, which I'm not sure why they assigned me there. I think it's maybe I was the oldest one in the group or something. But <laughs> as we were going into that planning session, they mentioned this idea of pre-need, of planning your funeral ahead of time. And they said the business, you know, the whole industry was growing and that it was a strategic risk for the casket company because we had the high-end caskets. They would show pictures of our caskets, but at the time of need, they didn't have enough money in the pre-need fund to get the most expensive caskets, so they'd use somebody else's knockoff. And so Dan, our CEO of the company, say that this isn't good. You've talked about this for six years. I've asked you what we're going to do about it. I've heard nothing. So I'm going to start out my own little think tank group, and they're going to figure out what to do with this. And that was the beginning of our little group that we call ourselves Halcyon to try to calm the waters of, of the, the pre-need industry. They took four of us, set us aside, and, and we studied with, uh, you know, worked with some of the biggest people in the industry and what they were doing. And we really thought we were going to just protect the casket. And I started looking at the numbers and realizing that doesn't solve the funeral director's problem. That didn't solve the consumer's problem. That's just thinking about us. Yeah. What about everybody else? Yeah. So that's when we went into the full-fledged pre-need product. I showed it to the president of our little group. 
And he was at first like, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. And he said, really understand we're not solving anybody else's problem but our own. We're just being selfish about this. And I don't think we're, it's going to do a good job. And so he thought about it over the weekend. He came back and said, let me look at those numbers again. And it was huge, billions of dollars. And he was going, okay, let's do it. And so we went back, presented that to the board. Two of the members of the board couldn't keep sitting. They were so excited about this new opportunity. They would just wander around the room. <laughs> okay, go, go, go. So they gave us some money and off we went to create Forthought, which became the largest pre-need insurance company in the United States within a few years. That's exciting. What a journey. It was, it was a lot of fun. And the beginning was, was a lot of fun. And we were all scrappy, you know, trying to make things happen and doing multiple jobs. And I know at first everyone was trying to, well, I want to do that. I want to, you know, I want to take everything. And after a while, we're just loaded way over our heads. And we're going, okay, you do that. You do that. You do that. How about you do that? And the culture was fun and caring in the beginning. I remember we had one lady couldn't make her payment and we all pitched in together and helped her make her payment just so that she could, you know, have her funeral covered. Then over time, the culture changed and it turned into, we, we didn't really manage it. We just, we were running our business, you know, we we're doing the business. We didn't really think much about culture. And it got to be where, you know, all the executives were in one area and so there's this prestige thing there. The whole thing turned into what's in it for me. And everybody was looking out for themselves. And I didn't like that. Culture's an interesting thing. One of the many buzzwords that seems to be floating around corporate America these days. That's an interesting point. I stumbled into a Greg McEwen will talk about priorities. And so he says, if you don't prioritize your life, somebody else will. And culture might be something like that. You know, if you don't prioritize culture, if you don't build culture, it builds itself. It's kind of not, it's not neutral. It's always evolving and growing. So I guess, what did you learn in that experience about kind of how culture works? And presently, the organization that you're part of, wildly successful and healthy culture, kind of compare and contrast that to me, I guess, what that lesson was in real time and how it informs your convictions today? Well, I think the first time we just weren't aware of it. We weren't managing it. We didn't think about it really. Yeah. Uh, we were being who we were and we were trying to, you know, do the right thing. We just didn't think about it. And I think that's it. We were focused on strategy. We we're focused on operations. You know, we were doing marketing, a lot of other stuff. We just hadn't focused on it. When we started up this, not this coming, actually Prequest was the first one we noticed it again. We started out again, had a really great culture, everybody working together, very focused on what we're doing, and yet very caring about each other and concerned. And my wife was the one actually that mentioned this. This feels very different. And when I come into the office, I like being in this office. I like being here. And we go, yeah, I do too. It's a really nice culture. So then when we came to this last company, working on it again, we had another partner that had different way of thinking about things. And when we first came in, after about four or five years, we were successful, but we, this uh, combination of the three partners just couldn't create the culture that we wanted. And my wife, again, would come in and go, mm, I don't like being there. And I don't either. And I got to figure that out. And so we ended up letting him go off to some other things and buying him out and then the remaining, remaining two partners, we both agreed on what the culture needed to be. And we worked hard to get it back to that. And we, I remember a key turning point, which we didn't realize at the time, is uh, we had a, a team we put together to figure out what kind of meetings we should have, how often we should have it, who should be there, what should the purpose be. 
and that whole thing. So we had a meeting on meetings and spent time figuring out the meetings. And one of the things they came up with, which was beautiful, which we didn't realize at the time, was to have an all-hands meeting. And that's every employee all together once a month. And we started out talking about how we're doing as a company. That was pretty boring. So we figured out we've got to do more. We started adding some games into it. We started adding. And then early on, we had kudos that would come in. Somebody would send us a note saying, you guys are doing great on this. You're doing great on that. And so we started including those in the all-hands meeting because we thought, hey, this, they'd like to hear this. And they love it. And we love it. And then we realized, so we started putting that in. We started putting congratulations for being around for a while, which was still a young company. So five yeah. years was a big deal. And several other things we started putting into that meeting. And then every time at the end of the meeting, I'm not sure how this came up, but we started, I was given the responsibility most of the time. And then some of the others, we talked about happy thoughts, which were things that would help you as an individual to be better and to be happier. And every time we had this kind of talk at the end and people loved it, they said, we, what, we want more of that. That helps us feel better as a person. It helps us to be better. We realized early on that the happier they are as a person, the more successful they are in all aspects of their life, the better they're going to be at work. Yeah. And so when we talked about those things at the end, some of them were how to be a better husband or wife or person. Some of it was how to be a better employee. All of those things mixed together, but it was a teaching moment to help people to have a happier life, basically. Beautiful. So how long, like just for context, because I think that's an awesome action item. You know, when we think about how do you manage culture, this all hands meeting has been real impactful for your organization. How, how long's the meeting and kind of like you've highlighted some of the content, but kind of what would be the general flow of, of an all hands meeting? And I guess in light of COVID right now, are you guys virtual? And as the company's expanded to other markets as well, how do you manage kind of the virtual environment or, or multi-jurisdiction or multi-geography uh, employees? Those are great questions. And we've had, to, we've had to work on those. They don't just happen. Like, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Culture doesn't just, a culture that just happens is what's in it for me. That's the default culture that everybody falls to. So yeah. if you want something different, you have to manage it. And so what we have them once a month, they're about an hour long. We have lunch attached to it some way, either before or after, something like that. So this and that's just part of us wanting to reinforce that we care about you. Mm-hmm. We combine those things together. The first part we start out, welcome everybody. And I don't know what all we do in the beginning. I know we do birthdays, we do anniversaries, but that's not the first thing we do. I know we do games and we do business too. We talk about how we're doing, like with this COVID thing. It it was a big deal. It knocked the wind out of our sails right in the beginning. And we were 50% of volume Hmm. the first first month. Well, you you can't survive on 50%. We couldn't survive on 50% of volume, at least not with the current staff. It would have been a dramatic shift. So we let them know those things. We let them know what was going on, but what our intention is. And then we ended up getting one of those PPP loans, which was fabulous for us because they gave us the time to get ourselves back in in line again. Now we're up to 90% of our sales. So we can live on 70%. We don't want to, but we can live there and we can grow. And so we're back to growing again. And that happened within about three or four months, but it was a a shift because all of our sales are done in person in the home. Not all, but a lot of them. Yeah. 
So we had to switch our paradigm. And so we put it together things to do online. We've got phone situation. We learned how to set appointments on the phone for a phone call. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff was switching. We put teams together overnight. You know, we had 20 teams going in all different directions to get ourselves profitable in a short period of time. And they were on it. The people, it was beautiful to see what they did. Each of those teams just working together, doing awesome things, which is another thing is that part of that meeting is we're complimenting. Part of that meeting is we're sharing kudos uh, that other people send them. And we've had them every month, which is just delightful to have. We're afraid of fun. If we start doing this, what happens if no one sends us anything? What happens? Yeah, that's awesome. We've had it every month. So we do some business stuff. We do that summary at the end. And we're very open and transparent about what's going on with the business. If it's doing great, they know it. If it's not doing great, they know it. And what the problems are, they know what they are. And they're working on them. Well, you just mentioned something, COVID-19, we're all kind of dealing with it. It created all kinds of personal, professional, financial adversity for Americans everywhere. It kind of brings up the the conversation of, of adversity and resilience. I'm a f- ex-football player and love great coach quotes, you know, all those great cliches. So there's one that goes, show me somebody who's done something worthwhile and I'll show you somebody that's overcome adversity. So that's a Lou Holtz quote. And so as I think about you and and the organizations that you've been a part of, I think of your personal journey, your professional journey, you've demonstrated some level of resilience. You've accomplished a lot of really cool things across all areas of your life, but it hasn't been a straight shot. It hasn't been always easy. So there's some business stumbles in there. You you referred to it as a a million dollar tuition and then Mm -hmm. also your own cancer battle. So I guess talk to me about some of the professional adversity that you've overcome and and ultimately when the pain passed, how you've been able to redeem that for transformative value for yourself and the clients and the teammates that you have today. Well, that's interesting. It it has not been a, you know, easy path. It's not linear. Definitely not linear. It's not. Obviously, I got into architecture. Then five years, I was top of the class. I had no job going out, but nobody had a job. Four hundred of us graduated. None of us had jobs. So you know, and struggled through that for five or six years because I enjoyed it. And then I just like this is not going to support my family. Yeah. So back to MBA school, moving forward on that, and, and doing it in something else, and then starting up this other type of business, totally different than architecture. But it was enjoyable, and it paid the bills. You know. It kept us going. We didn't really have the intent of starting our own company. We were doing just fine. And we're in Fortune 500 company. And then I was in a Fortune 50 company for a while and did well in those situations. Yeah, there's politics and stuff, but you, you just work with it, you know, and you work with the people and you work with what you're doing. But that being said, PreQuest was my first start into the pre-need business doing what we're doing right now, basically. Yeah. And I worked with the company that I had helped create. You know, we used their insurance product and we marketed and helped funeral directors to market pre-need. And that was doing great. We were starting to really take off and grow. And forethought, their incentive, personal incentive, changed from sales to profitability. So they started looking anywhere they can get profits. And they decided that they could take my commissions from 15.5% average down to 8.5%. Well, I... You know, I had about a half a percent margin in there, so there's no way to make it on that. But they said, we'll we'll help you transition to a more efficient way. And so they helped do some things and they they kept stalling and stuff. And I remember one point we got down to basically zero. We'd we'd taken taken all the money that we'd made during that time and we were back down now down to zero. 
and struggling with, do we keep going or do we stop and get out white before it goes negative? And we felt like we should keep going. We went another year, went farther down, down, down. And we got out and we said, why did we do that? But in, in retrospect, there were several reasons and we learned about them and we learned a lot in that process. We went out and fortunately got some other jobs quickly and then started moving back up. We had amazing blessings. That thing was paid off in two and a half years. It was incredible. Just the miracles that happened to get that thing paid off. But that happened. We learned from that and we're ready to go back again. And you know, you'd think, I would think, my wife would be going, you've got to be kidding. We've already done this once. What are you thinking? (laughs) We already know how this story ends. Come on, Mark. (laughs) Exactly. But she wasn't that way at all. She was very supportive. She says, I feel good about this. I think it's the right thing to do. Let's go for it. We had you know, some partners in at that time, which was good. First time we were just totally on our own. And so we, we went back into the same industry, doing the same thing the same way. But we learned very two important lessons. One was make in the agreement with the insurance companies that they can't change the commissions without giving us a year's notice. Yep. Okay. That gives you time. Now you can get somebody else. You can create a new product. There's things that you can do. But yep. if you don't have any notice, you can't do it. So that was the first one. All of our contracts had that in it. From then on, we've got our protection because we need it. Okay, then the next thing we learned was to use somebody else's money instead of your own. Well, you realize that we're building an insurance company. We're partnering with them. We're helping build their business. They're actually pretty interested in that. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll help fund it. And so we did that with... Actually, two different insurance companies and still doing it now with a a third. And that's worked out great for them and for us. They help get us started. We grow their business dramatically. We're more than half of the insurance company that we're working with right now. And they're the largest in the industry because of us. So they're happy with that. And we're happy with that. So two important lessons and made all the difference. So, yeah, it was a million dollar tuition. It cost us. I figured I could have gone on vacation when I first started that business and just enjoyed vacation for six years and been at the same place financially. So, What I think is interesting is just the power of self-talk or thought or framing. I mean, because you view that authentically as tuition. I mean, you could have easily worn the victim outfit, wake up and wear the victim. This is unfair. This happened to me. But instead, you ground, ground it out, paid everything off, retrenched, retooled, recapitalized, and and went at it again. And there's like, I just think that that's part of the fabric or the DNA of a successful business owner is just that unwillingness to quit, kind of just tenacious and long-suffering and committed. So kudos. I think that's pretty cool. It has been a great experience. It really has. And I must admit, without a supportive wife, it would have been hard. And I'm drawing that conclusion. It sounds like you and I share the common trait of both having married up, married wonderful women that are uh, phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like she, your wife has great intuition as well. Mine seems to have kind of that sixth sense for different things. Culture is the stuff that I'm just sometimes ignorant to. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. Well, and now she goes back in the office now and says, great, we're back again. You know, we're we back. We're back. And it's just like, you know, she's a good barometer on that. She feels it. I think that's phenomenal. We can talk strategy here in a minute, but I kind of wanted to continue our conversation about resilience. And so I've been told your cancer story is pretty miraculous, but you and I haven't really talked about that yet. So I guess, you know, you spend a lifetime trying to to support family and build businesses. And I think it's easy to kind of not 
spend much time contemplating our own mortality, but you did have that moment. You probably have had those moments and you ultimately wrote a book kind of sharing some of your thoughts and feelings kind of via journal form, so to speak, along the way. But I guess let's go deep there for a minute and just talk to me about what it's like to deal with that kind of personal adversity and I guess the clarity that might come from it. Like there's always a hidden blessing in the adversity and I want to know what that blessing has been for you. Well, it was an interesting, really interesting. You know, as I growing up, I got sunburned several times. We lived in Southern California and we'd go to the beach every summer and I'd go down there and just get burnt. And, you know, you'd think you'd learn after a few times, but we didn't have sunblock back then. You know, it was just tanning oil, which is just (laughs) the obvious sizzle, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, it happened consistently. And so when I got into Hillenbrand, they had a corporate policy that says, if you're an officer, you have to have a physical, a complete physical. Okay. So I put it off as long as I could. I wasn't that old. I don't know, I'm in the 30s. And, and so finally I went over, did the physical. They looked at a mole on the center of my back and they said, you know, this one, if it ever changes, get to a dermatologist quick. Uh, it doesn't look like it's live now, so we'll just leave it there. But So I said, no. Okay. So put it in the book. That just happened five or six years later. It starts to disappear. And I'm going, great, disappear. That's good. And then I thought, you know, I thought about it over the next couple of days. He said change. He didn't say grow, change. So it's changing. So I went in, set up an appointment, and, you know, it took a couple of weeks to get an appointment, and, and then got in there, and he, I said, I got this thing in the back. It's going away. And he looked at it, and he said, whoa, we got a live one. <laughs> I'm getting that out of here. And within a minute from the time he saw it, that thing was out. I mean, he went in and just took it right out. And that was... It's been almost 30 years ago. It was 1990. And then had another melanoma skin thing 10 years later. And then after five years, they say, you know, there's no risk. They tell you that it could spread, Mm -hmm. but it probably won't. And so we did some other operations to get them not to spread. But then in 2012, it shows up. It started to spread. How did we know? We had a cough that just wouldn't quit. And so then they sent me an x-ray. Then they said, we got three dots on your lungs. And eventually, we decided we need to get a PET scan. We get a PET scan. The next day, they call me up and say, come into the emergency room. We need you right now. You got a glob in your heart. I'm going, glob in my heart? What is a glob? And we end up finding out we have a lime-sized tumor in the heart. We have innumerable tumors in both lungs. We have a lime-sized tumor in my liver. We have six other tumors in the muscle tissues of the back and legs and hip. So... We go talk to the doctor, the oncologist, and he says, yeah, you know, we've got new things. A few years ago, I did say, get your life in order. It's over. But now we have some new things. And you probably have a 3% chance of living. I'm going, three? That's not very good. That's a 97% chance of dying. He goes, well, it's better than nothing. (laughs) I guess that's a perspective, right? I guess if we all zoom out long enough, we have a 100% chance of dying. It just... That's not the timeline that we're looking for. Yeah, so he said six months to a year. He really meant three months, he told us later. But uh, so we got things in order. You know, we we had already been talking about progression. We'd already put together an agreement that we'd worked out with the next generation of managers. We really want to be able to pass it on in an effective way that kept the company growing. 
yeah. and still paid us over time. You know, we didn't realize we couldn't get it all up front that way, but we get paid off over time, but they would get the ownership. We'd do it gradually over time. Had it all worked out. We were just ready to sign the papers and we found out this and they said, oh, has this changed anything? <laughs> so we kind of re-looked at it again, make sure it still worked, put in a little more protection for my wife in case I happened to be gone. And two of the people in the group were sons, so they um, care about my wife too, so fortunately. Yeah. So we got it, still got it worked out, and but what a change. I went to the boys afterwards and said, okay, we got a couple of issues, a couple options. I got six months to 12 months to live. You can either shadow me for as long as I can keep working and learn from me what I'm doing and learn that way, or you can take over. You pick up all my responsibilities and call me when you need me, or, you know, and I'll train as much as I can. And they thought about it for a day and came back and said, we're afraid if we just have you teach us, we're not going to really learn what it's like. So we think it's best if we just take over and why we can still call you because I'm sure it's going to happen. And if you're gone, we can't call you anymore. So we did that. And I went in the next day to work, just like I was going. And then one of them came by and said, well, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I thought I worked here. <laughs> the other one came in and, oh, what are you doing here? So I said, okay, by noon, I packed up, went home. It was, that was a quick transition. We'd already worked things out and it wasn't done. There was a lot of phone calls and there's a lot yeah. of conversations and there still are. But now the conversations are more from a consulting role. Or if it's a big issue, then they they talk to us as partners. But they're running it, and they're doing a fabulous job. They're not doing it the same way I would. They have different skills and talents, and they're doing some things way better than I could do it. And the things that I'm really good at, they're not doing as well. And they know it, and they feel it, and they wish they could, but they can't. So that phone call was back in 2012? It was. So the doctor turned out to be wrong, thank goodness. He did. He put us on a temporary medication that's supposed to last about four or five months, and it lasted a year. And in the process, all the tumors went away. And he's like, well, I've heard of this happening. It's less than 1% chance, but it does happen, and obviously happened with you. And so then we were off of for a year, then the tumors came back again. They've come back seven times in the eight years, and that's always kind of a reset. Uh, still there could come back anytime. We're on that similar type temporary medication now. We've tried some permanent things. They haven't worked. So we're on a temporary. And it's gone way longer than it's supposed to. I don't want to be presumptive here, but is there blessing in this experience? I mean, obviously, a lot of adversity and probably sleepless nights and difficult conversations. But have you been able to, to see good things come from this adversity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the transition with the company was was easier, I think, for all of us. I mean, it was abrupt, but it, it made it easier. I was focused on helping them to be successful rather than my own, you know, ego. And that was much more healthy. I think they were feeling the responsibility quicker, excited about it, but still they had me to be able to talk to. And I was in a consulting role rather than a competing role. That helped. I have more time with my wife, which has been delightful. More time with the grandkids, which has been awesome. Wonderful relationships with my sons that have taken over, which can be challenging. Yeah. Family business can be challenging. You, you wear so many different hats that are kind of simultaneous and there's a complexity there for sure. There are. And, and I had to decide what's most important. 
is my relationship with my sons more important or my ego or my business or whatever? And there's obviously a balance in there. And you have to share what you have to share to help them to be successful. But recognize that the way you did the business and the way you succeeded isn't the same that the way they're going to succeed. And that's okay. That's uniquely more complicated. It's easy to say and hard to do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's essential. And you just got to mentally back off and look for the good. Well, we're going to run out of time because I could keep talking to you about a bunch of different things, but I do want to talk to you about strategy. So as I was listening to you previously talk about strategy, I think you've really uniquely differentiated the business through its level of focus, specialization, and, and kind of being not as wide or broad as, as other organizations, but being very deep in the type of partnerships that you're able to have within the industry, I think are unique. So it actually reminded me of a book. The author is, a, I think, a Harvard professor. She's, her name is Young May Moon. She wrote a book called Different. And the book Different is Escaping the Competitive Herd. So I think the competitive herd has a tendency to continue to add more and just continue to expand kind of horizontally versus drill down and and add depth and expertise. So I guess kind of talk to me about how focus or the active pursuit of less but better has been a component of your overall strategy. I actually learned that at Hillenbrand. Strategy is more about what you're not going to do than it is about what you're going to do. We've focused in on a certain part of the industry that is important, and it's not something that funeral directors are very good at, and they, they admit that. They're good at answering the phone and taking care of families and going through that whole process, and what we do is we're out there. We're presenting in the community. We're mailing things out. We're going out into the community to help people to plan their funerals. Everyone thinks it's a good idea to plan your funeral, and nobody wants to do it. It's not like shopping for cars or for houses or any other kind of thing. They just go, oh, let's go plan our funeral tonight. Wouldn't that be fun? No. Nobody, no. nobody thinks so. No. Now, it actually can be quite fun, and we have a good time doing it. But, but no one goes out, usually no. until they're too late. You know? It makes sense. So we have to go out and market, and that's what we do. And we just focus on that. And you know, when we first started out, we thought we were going to just appeal to the smaller funeral homes because the big ones, they were so good at this that we'd never be able to help them. But as time went on, we got better and better. And the big people, we realized they actually weren't that good at it. I mean, they're okay at it, the really big ones, but anything less than really large, they struggle with it because it's not their core business. But they realize how important it is because when someone plans it ahead of time, it's so much easier on the family. Everything's taken care of. It's all paid for ahead of time. It's all worked out. And they just, the families love it, but they weren't good at doing it. So we ended up partnering with the largest firms in the world. And they want to work with us because we are focused, razor focused on pre-planning. And we help people plan their fields ahead of time. And we do it every day. And that's all we do. And it's amazing that the customers that we can attract because we are focused. And then, you know, we talked about our culture and part of our culture is embedded into our guiding principles. You know, our purpose is to enriching life through meaningful connections. And we know that funerals are part of that, yeah. as well as planning funerals. And it's our vision to prearrange all families because we know it's better for them. That's what we want to do. We just want to help everyone get it planned ahead of time. 
then the mission comes down to developing lasting partnerships with leading funeral homes because they're the ones that deliver. They're the ones that do things together. You got to have a license. You have to have a place, all that stuff. So you got to deal with them. And we love them. And they're great people. And then we have a proactive model. We know that. We're proactive about helping people plan their funerals. And that's the way we do it. We don't just sit back and wait for them to come because they won't until it's too late. And then we want to create impactful, meaningful, or create impactful consumer experiences, both in the pre-planning process and then when, the, when it actually takes place, when the funeral takes place. We wanted to make a difference in their lives, to help them to be better and happier and all that. So that's part of it. Then our core values are really simple. And we have them delineated in much more detail. But as far as our employees are concerned and our customers, our values are kindness, progression, and craftsmanship. And that's what drives us. But what was sweet is to have one of our largest customers um, in the world, one of our largest funeral homes, and someone else was talking about us and asking them about us and working with us. And he said, you know, there's... There's really two things about them. One is that they're really good at what they do. Really good. And then the other is they're just nice to work with. Yeah. And that's, that's us. That's what we want to be. So I love those core values of kindness, progression, and craftsmanship. Did I get them correct? You got them. All right. So kindness, that one to me is like, not that it's unexpected, but you're like, well, that, that one totally makes sense. Can you explain progression and craftsmanship to me and kind of what it means to the organization and why you, the team was attracted to those words? Yes, absolutely. Progression has to do with us as a company getting better and better, and most importantly, about them as individuals getting better and better, better at home, better at work, better in everything they do. And so part of our mission is to help our employees to progress and to become the best they can be. And then craftsmanship is just being a craftsman. Whatever you do, do it well. You're going to go out and offer pre to somebody, do it well. Whatever you do, and be proud of the work that you do. Well, just by happenstance, I don't think we could end the conversation on a better note of be kind, get better, and be excellent at what you do. Mark, Man, what a wonderful conversation today. And thank you for sharing some of your experiences, insight, and convictions with our community on behalf of of everybody. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate the opportunity. Mark, thanks so much. Sincerely, we appreciate you sharing your insights and your experiences with us today. Your story certainly brings up a few potential planning reminders for us all. When we started this podcast last year, It was in the spirit of trying to connect our clients and our community to stories, experiences, tools, and insights that would create value for them, clarity, confidence to the decisions that they're making across all areas of their life and certainly financially. There are numerous potential responses to today's conversation with Mark, but if you haven't done your estate plan recently or updated it recently, that's certainly some low-hanging fruit from a planning perspective. None of us know when we're going to get the phone call that Mark got. Fortunately, Mark's been able to successfully battle his diagnosis, but great planning accounts for the things that we don't always know the answers to. And so certainly keeping your estate plan up to date is prudent. So be sure to check out in the show notes, as well as on the DeLap website, where the podcast is also located. 
check out a tool called What Issues Should I Consider Before I Update My Estate Plan? A wonderful checklist that runs you through beneficiary considerations, fiduciary issues, asset and property related issues, minor and children related issues, and it's been recently updated as of June. Be sure to check that tool out. Another tool that exists as well is what issues you should consider if your spouse or loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Certainly not something that any of us want to deal with, but often is a reality that's forced upon us. And so the checklist covers 28 important planning things to consider from cash flow to estate planning, insurance, tax planning, and asset and debt issues, amongst others, as well as the last checklist. This one has been updated as well. So be sure to check out these tools and be sure to check out the coming weeks ahead. We have some spectacular guests and topics in store. Until then, be well.